We'll now have the Bible reading. If you don't have a Bible with you, um, there should be a black one in the pew so that you can follow along with us. Today's reading is taken from the book of Ephesians, chapter 3, verse 14. And in the Pew Bibles, that's page 1176. So Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 14. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Good morning, everyone. Everybody doing okay? Happy New Year to you. If we haven't met before, hi, I'm James. I'm also one of the pastors here at BRBC. And this year, to begin 2019, we're going to be thinking about prayer. We're going to spend five Sunday mornings thinking about the act of prayer, the concept of prayer, and most of all, we're going to be drilling down into what I want to call the postures for prayer. But before we do that, let me introduce you to a few people. First person we're going to meet, this guy, well, he's a productive, efficient kind of guy. I mean, he likes to eke out every single minute of productivity throughout the day. I mean, he gets up early, he sets that alarm, he never presses snooze, and he gets up, has a decent breakfast, he's down in the kitchen, he's in the living room, and he's getting things done. And then, before anyone else has left their driveways, he's already at the desk in the office, charging through emails, charging through that to-do list, and getting done with all of the tasks throughout the day. He works a really, really long day, and he's productive, he's efficient, and he takes a little bit of pride in that. He likes to work hard. And he gets home pretty late in the day, and of course, when he gets home, there's other responsibilities to deal with. He's got friends to see, he's got family to look after, and then on top of that, he's properly plugged into church life. There's community groups, there's planning, there's serving on teams. He works a full day, and by the end of the day, he lays down in his bed, absolutely exhausted. He puts his head on the pillow and suddenly thinks, ah, I haven't prayed today. You know what I'll do? I'll just take a couple of moments at the end of the day. I'm going to pray. That's right. Okay. Heavenly Father, thank you. And the day's done. Now, if you asked him, uh, what's your prayer life like? He would say, well, every now and again, I suppose. No, really, what's it like? Well, if I'm honest, I have this low-grade humming guilt when it comes to prayer. I know I should, but I've got my life. I just feel a little bit guilty about it. 
And let me introduce you to someone else. This lady, she also has quite a busy and chaotic life. She's a mum, and there are kids to look after. So in the morning, the kids get up early, there's hungry mouths to feed, and there's the day to plan for. So before she's got out the door, she's got the school bags ready, the lunches are packed, the family is well catered for, and then she has to go and drop the kids off at the school gate. So she does that, and then gets off to her own job. Works a very busy day, and the end of the day, picks up those children, and of course, the kids are going to need attention. So as soon as they get in the house, there's mouths to feed, homework to be done, baths to be had, bedtime stories to be given, and by the end of the day, she's absolutely exhausted, no energy whatsoever. How's your prayer life, you ask her? Well, I'd love to pray, but have you seen the demands on my life, she would say? Have you seen how busy I am? Pray, I'd love to, but look at the demands. I'm busy. Let me introduce you to one more person. This person lives a slower-paced life, doesn't quite have the same demands, pulling them every which way. This person works a normal 40-hour week, plugged into church life, and can afford to take life at a slightly slower pace. So what they do is that they have ample time to sit down, open God's Word, pour over the Bible, and carve out a little bit of time every day in order to pray. And that's what they've been doing for the last 20 years or so. Good routine. It's well embedded into normal everyday life. But you ask this person, what's your prayer life like? Well, I pray. I read my Bible. But if I'm really honest, I've just said the same thing for 20 years. I've quoted the same passages. I've prayed for the same colleague. I've prayed for the same family member. My prayer life... It feels a little bit stale. And if I'm really honest with you, it feels a bit boring. Guilty, busy, bored. I don't know if you've ever been there before when it comes to prayer. Or maybe you've just looked at your prayer life and said, I think there's something something missing. It feels like I'm missing something when it comes to prayer. Maybe you've been there for a season. Maybe you're there right now. But there's one thing we can't ignore when it comes to prayer is the amount that our Bibles talk about prayer. A giant proportion of God's word is filled with examples of of prayer, uh, calls to prayer, people crying out to God in all kinds of different ways. Prayer is a massive deal. The Bible wouldn't let us believe that prayer is an add-on optional extra. Rather, it's a centrality to our lives. It's a necessity. So what we're going to be doing over the first five weeks of 2019, we're going to be taking various pit stops in this series called Prayer, Postures for Praying People. Now I know we're not going to cover everything when it comes to prayer, that would take us a couple of years to do that, but we're just going to hone in on postures. Now you're asking, what do you mean by postures? Well what I don't mean is is physical postures, so we're not going to spend a week on hands together and eyes closed. We're, we're not going to do a week on, uh, on your knees. Uh, we're not going to do a week on laying prostrate. We're not going to do a week on hands raised. We're going, to, we're going to talk about postures of the heart. We're going to talk about postures of the mind. We're going to talk about attitudes or dispositions that we carry as we enter prayer. So here's the five postures we're going to be looking at over the next few weeks. So this morning, we're going to look at the posture of standing still. So Ephesians chapter 3, Paul stops in his tracks. He stands still to pray. Next week, we're going to say stick with. We're going to look at Matthew chapter 6, 
and we're going to see the Pharisees, and we're going to see the pagans, and we're going to see how they pray and kind of learn how not to pray. So stick with. Then we're going to do stay low. We're going to look at Luke 18, at the tax collector and the Pharisee praying in the temple. This one's going to be about humility. Then we're going to look at stand tall. Hebrews chapter 4, approach the throne of grace with confidence. Stand tall. And then lastly, we're going to look at struggle on. We're going to look at a forgotten kind of prayer. It's called a lament. It's when we cry out in the midst of suffering or we witness suffering. We're going through a hard time and we have those questions. We have a sense of confusion and we don't know where to turn, but there's a call to struggle on. So these are the five postures in prayer we're going to be starting 2019 with. And where we're going to start this morning is what we just had read to us. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 14 to verse 19. Now, what we have going on right here, and we're going to give some of the game away early on here. What we have is Paul obviously dealing with the demands of the church in Ephesus. He's got a lot to write about. He's got a lot to teach them. But what seems to happen, Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 14, he just stops. It's time to pray. It's time to pray for a deepening of our spiritual lives. It's time to pray for a deepening of who we understand God to be. It's time to stop and in prayer receive the truth of who Jesus Christ is to us. So what Paul does in Ephesians 3 is he stands still, carves out that space in order to pray. So the big idea behind where we're headed this morning is this, stand still to deepen your prayer lives. That's the title of this morning, the extended title, stand still to deepen your prayer life. Now, this is where we're going to be headed, so next slide, please. Four different ways Paul seems to go throughout this prayer, and we're going to explore all of these. So how do we deepen our prayer lives? Well, let's look at how Paul prays. He goes to the Father, he goes with the mind of God, or he prays the mind of God, to experience the love of God in Jesus Christ. Notice the word experience, we're going to get there, and look at the bottom one, to be filled. So that's what we find in Ephesians 13, this beautiful little rich prayer from Paul. As he stops in his tracks, he prays for these things. So we're going to learn how to pray alongside Paul and deepen our own prayer lives. So why don't we dig in the first verse that we had read to us, verse 14. Let's let's explore that one a little bit. I'll reread it. For this reason, what does he say there? I bow my knees before who? The Father. Verse 15, what's this father like? From whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. Okay, so Paul begins his prayer by praying to the father. Now that's a good way to start a prayer. I mean, if you've studied the Lord's Prayer before, how does it start? Jesus says, pray this way, our father. I mean, this is good standard theology of prayer from Paul. I mean, he knows that. He knows we pray to the father. We pray in the name of Jesus Christ and we're strengthened and enabled by the Holy Spirit. So Paul knows that, so he prays to the Father. Now, how is he approaching the Father? What does he say right there? I bow my knees before the Father. So he's not entering into prayer with some kind of wanton, cavalier fashion. There's a sense of reverence. There's a, perhaps a fear of God right here. He approaches God in that kind of humility. Now, who's this Father? 15. 
from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. That's a really difficult phrase to translate and understand. Some commentators will say that this is, this is Paul basically saying he's the father and he's sovereign over every single person. They bear the fingerprint of God. Or he could be, or he could be meaning right here that everybody who belongs to God bears his name. So over all of those families, that's the kind of father I'm praying to. But notice, how does he start the prayer? Three words. For this reason. He begins this prayer, for this reason. So you're like, okay, well, what's the reason? Can we just look at chapter 3, verse 13? Wouldn't that give us the reason? Well, actually, it's a bit broader than that. Go up to chapter 3 and verse 1. What are those first three words? For this reason. So we're going to have to go back a little bit further. And if you read through Ephesians, what you would find is that the ground to Paul's prayer, this reason, is all of chapter 1 and chapter 2 together. He's just done this beautiful description of who Jesus is, this description of God's plan for salvation, this description of God's grace in salvation. Paul describes, hey, you don't become one of God's own by your good works. You don't come, become one of God's own because you've got your life together. You become one of God's own by his grace. It's by the person and work of Jesus Christ that you belong to him. That's how you know him. And then Paul goes on to talk about this one, pers- one, one, one group of people that God is forming for himself. From the Jews and the Gentiles, he's melding them into one new community. And in light of that wonderful work of who Jesus is and what he's done, for that reason, I bow my knees to the Father and I'm going to pray. So what we have right here is Paul is praying to the Father. But question, before we go any further in our series, before we move at all, we've got to ask the question, well, what actually is prayer? We see Paul praying, but what is it? Now, now most of the time, people will give a... uh, kind of a a simple definition, and I've done it before. Well, prayer is just talking to God, isn't it? Isn't that what prayer is? Well, to be honest, most of the time, it is talking to God. But what do we do with, like, verses in Romans chapter 8, when Paul talks about the spirit brought about prayer within us with groans that are too deep for words? Because that's still prayer. So, So is prayer just talking to God, or it's more than that? Well, yes, prayer has to be broader. You see, what prayer is, prayer is a response to who God's revealed himself to be, and it doesn't necessarily have to be words, because we know there's times in our lives where we don't know what to pray and we just cry out, and yet we're communicating, we're responding to who God is. So I want to define prayer like this before we move any further. Prayer is a personal and intentional communicative response to who God has revealed himself to be. Now say that again. Prayer is an intentional and it's a personal communicative response to who God has revealed himself to be. That's what prayer is and that's what's going on here. So first point, Paul goes to the Father. Now you might be sitting here this morning thinking to yourself, well, well that's simple. Uh, I already knew that about prayer. You might be thinking, I've sat through loads of sermons on the Lord's Prayer. I know what it means to pray, for the fa- pray to the Father. Great. But why doesn't that happen in our lives? Why don't we have that space in our lives where we do go to the Father? Why do we find ourselves busy? Why do we find ourselves distracted? Why do we find ourselves living such chaotic and mad lives that that, going to the Father, 
very rarely happens. So this is an opportunity for every single one of us in the room to remember, as Paul prays, he does exactly that. He carves out space. He stands still. He pauses to go to the Father. Because he's communicating with the Father. He's responding to who the Father, who God has revealed himself to be. And he has to stand still. You have to stand still to communicate. You have to stand still to give attention to. You have to stand still for a relationship to be grown, to be formed, to be maintained. One of my favorite roads in the entire world is a small side street in the state, uh, the state capital city of Washington State. So the city's Olympia, and in Olympia, you, you'd think a capital city of a state is going to be massive. It's actually about the size of Berry. But there's one side street. I love walking around Olympia, and there's one side street I just love, and I love walking down it. There's, there's lovely gardens, and the houses are these, these lovely kind of wooden-framed homes with slats on the side, and they're all different wacky colors, and I love it. But my favorite thing about this road is that every house has a porch, do we call it a porch? Do we call it a porch or a veranda? I don't know what we call it. But outside of the front door, you've got a deck, and then you've got the, the, the deck's covered. There's a roof over that. And then on this lovely big deck, you would have like a, a rocking chair or a swing seat or, or, or a bench or, or, I don't know, some place to sit. And then there's going to be hanging baskets, a few plant plot, pots. And my house doesn't have this. And one day, I would just love to have a porch. Deacons, did you hear that? I'd like a porch on my house at some point. <laughs> just kidding. No, I'm not kidding. I'd like one. <laughs> and, and down this road, you have these porches. And I love it because what people would do is they would, they would sit on these porches and just talk. So at lunchtime, they eat their lunches on the porch. In the evening, they sit there with a cuppa and a book. And they just sit out on the porch. And so what happens is, is that people on the road just walk back and forward. So there's only the stretch of their front garden to say hello to the neighbor. I'd love to live on this street. I'd love to just look across. Hey, at number 10, how was your daughter's wedding last week? Oh, number 17, uh, how's that tricky situation at work going? Hey, uh, number two, um, you want to come around for a barbecue next week? You see what happens on this road? People just start talking to each other. And every time you walk along this street, people are saying hello. People are stopping to talk. People don't know each other. But they're just stopping to have those conversations. And what happens on this road? People start talking. What happens then? relationships are formed. What happens then? Friendships are formed. Then what? Friendships grow. And then what? Friendships then flourish. So this road, unlike the road that I live on, has a porch. And the porch provides a space in order for the communication to happen. The porch is a space where this conversation takes place. The porch is a place where these friendships are built, where these friendships are maintained, and these friendships are strengthened. If you look at our lives, do we have that porch space in our lives where we actually stop and communicate, commune with the Almighty? Maybe our prayer lives need a little bit more of the porch life. Maybe our prayer lives need that little space where we stop in our chaotic, busy days and we just say, hey, it is time to intentionally and personally respond, a communicative response to our God who has revealed himself. We need that space in our lives. But what's Paul doing? He's creating that space. He stands still to go to the Father. Now, before we get stuck into the meat of this, there's another thing I want us to see here. Let's read through verse 16, just a few snippets here. That according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power 
through his spirit in your inner being. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all of the saints, that's with all of God's people, what is the breadth, the height, and the depth, uh, the length, and the height, and the depth, and to know the love of Christ, which that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now, what we don't find in this prayer is Paul saying, Oh, you know that verse from Deuteronomy? It says this, this, and this. It's often what Paul does in his writing. He quotes the Old Testament, and we find it all over the New. But we don't find Paul saying, Oh, you know that's, that verse in the Psalm? I'll bring that into the prayer. Oh, that verse from Isaiah? I'll bring that into this prayer. No, we don't find him quoting the Bible, but what we do find him doing is praying through the concepts and the truths we find in the Bible. I mean, he's distinctly Trinitarian in the way that he prays. He's mentioning the Father. He's talking about the power and the strength that comes by the Spirit. He's talking about the indwelling of Christ. He's talking about the glorious riches of the Father and that the believer would have the strength to comprehend and understand that. You see, what Paul isn't doing is praying necessarily the exact verses of scripture he is most assuredly praying with the mind of God he's most assuredly praying a prayer that is completely consistent with what we find in the rest of the bible completely consistent with this theology that we find in the new testament about what it means to be a christian Paul's praying in line with that so Paul stands still to pray the mind of God now we ask the question well that's good for Paul He's one of the cleverest minds in history. How are we supposed to do that? We see all of Paul's prayers loaded with the mind of God, filled with concepts and truths that we read about all over the Bible. How are we supposed to pray the mind of God? If he does it, how do we do it? Really, really, really simple answer. We open up our Bibles, which is God's mind, God's revelation to us, and we pray through it. That seems like a really simple thing to say. But I don't know about you, so often in my life, I find myself praying the same thing for the same people, with the same words, quoting the same verses. How do I break that? How, how do I have more of a dynamic kind of prayer life, a more diverse, a richer kind of prayer life, where I'm not endlessly repeating myself? How do I get over that, that boredom and that staleness within prayer? Well, we open up his word, and we begin to pray through it. We pray the mind of God. Now, one of, the, one of my heroes within the uh, Christian history is George Muller. I often talk about him, but if you don't know who George Muller was, he was a man who worked in Bristol, in the west of, the UK, uh, west of England, and he set up orphanages and looked after thousands and thousands of street kids and those who were working in some of the factories. And he looked after loads of them. But one of the things George Muller is known for is his prayer life. And you can get a hold of some of his prayer journals, and they are absolutely stunning. I mean, we have 50,000 recorded answers to George Muller's prayers. 30,000 of them were on the same day. I mean, that's just stunning, this kind of life that this guy lived a prayer. So, so we hold him up as one of the, the foremost prayers in church history. He, he's got to be the best, right? But what he says about his own prayer life is that the first 10 years were really quite stale. The first 10 years, he struggled to find the heart to pray. He knew he should, and he did go ahead and do it, but he just took ages for him to really find the heart, the motivation, and the incentive to pray. But 10 years into his ministry, 10 years into his Christian life, what does he find? He discovers that praying the Bible brought his prayer life to life. 
and things transformed. Went from being stale and lackluster and struggling to find the heart to a dynamic and filled and quite vivid prayer life. Here's what he writes about this discovery of praying the Bible. He writes this, I scarcely ever suffer now in this way, for my heart being nourished by the truth, being brought into experience, to experience fellowship with God, I speak to my father and to my friend, though vile, the, the, vile though I am and unworthy of it, I pray about the things that he has brought before me in his precious word. I love this last sentence. It often now astonishes me that I did not see it sooner up until this point. I did not see it sooner. So, so what he does is he opens up the Bible and his prayer life comes to light. And you're like, okay, well, what on earth does that look like? Well, take Psalm 23, for example. The Lord's my shepherd. Thank you, Lord, that you are my shepherd. Thank you, Lord, that you feed, lead, and protect me. Thank you that you're a good shepherd. The Lord's my shepherd, I shall not want. Thank you, Lord, that you always provide for me. Thank you that I'm never without, and I'm never in want. You provide everything. You see what I mean? You just open up this word, and you begin praying through it. You feel like prayers become a bit boring? I advocate opening up his word. Now, I'm not saying every single prayer has to be us with our Bibles open. I know there's some times in life where you just have to spontaneously cry out. There are some conversations at work. There are tricky situations in life where you don't know what to do. And you utter those prayers. I know it can be spontaneous. I know we can do those heartfelt prayers. But if you're wondering how to get free from perhaps a boredom of saying the same old, the same old, pray the mind of God. Open up that word, which is exactly what we see right here. Now let's continue to dig in. I want to reread verse 16 and the first half of 19. This is what Paul is praying for his readers. And this is really quite stunning. That, according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may... Dwell in your hearts through faith. Listen to this. That you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all of the saints. Look at these dimensions. What is the breadth? What is the length? And the height? And the depth? And to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Now think about the logic that Paul's praying right there. Isn't that absolutely unreal? I'm going to the Father, I'm bowing my knees, and I'm, what I'm praying for is that you would be strengthened with this power. Using the word power, strengthened with this power. But what's that power? Well, it's a spirit-given power, and it's in your inner being, and it's the dwelling of Jesus Christ in you, in your inner being. And what does that do? What do we see? You will have a strength. I'm asking you have a strength to comprehend what are these boundless, limitless, off-the-charts dimensions of Jesus' love for you. And that you would know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Now notice what he's saying right here. Paul's not saying that this power comes from inside of you. He's not saying this power uh, is, is somehow latent within you. He's not giving some kind of a self-help guide that says, it's in you, you just need to find it. No, he's not saying that. This power comes from outside of us. This strength, 
This comprehension is spirit-given, and where is it? It's in the inner being. It's in the very core of who we are. So it's spirit-given, but notice also, Paul's not saying that you may have the power to love Jesus more. He's saying, what does he say? That you would have the power to comprehend the love he has for you. I mean, it goes the other way. So this isn't about us trying to do something. It's about us receiving a reality that's already there. You see the logic there. But there's something really unreal right here. I mean unreal. Look at verse 19. And to know the love of Christ. Look at that. To know, that word know, love of Christ that surpasses what? Knowledge. Think about that. How how does that work? Does Does that sound like a contradiction to you? I am praying that you might know something that surpasses knowledge. How are you supposed to know something that surpasses knowledge? And this love of Christ and these unknowable dimensions of Christ's love for you, how are you supposed to know something that you can't fully get your head around? Well, I think what Paul's praying for is an experience. He's praying that the Ephesian Christians would understand the love of Christ in a way that blows their mind, in a way that goes beyond their formulations and their intellect in a way that goes deeper than just saying that Jesus loves me and I know this. It's an experience that he's talking about. What Paul's praying for is that these believers would be awash with the glory and the grandeur of God's love for them in the person of Jesus Christ. That they would be awash in the knowledge that Jesus loves them For he shows us his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's love. He wants them to see that they would understand that the Father gave up the Son. That the Father said, I want that person in my family and I'll do whatever it takes to get them in my family, even if it costs my son. That kind of a love. That kind of initiating love. That kind of love that can't be put into our intellectual formulations. That kind of a love. It's an experience of love. Now, Jonathan Edwards uses a famous illustration here at this point. He says, think about honey. We can talk about honey. We can talk about the properties of honey. We can talk about honey being sticky. We can say it comes from bees. We can say honey is uh, usually kind of like a a yellowy color. You can kind of see through it sometimes. Uh, It's really good on toast with butter. But the best thing about honey is that honey tastes sweet. And it's one of the sweetest things you could ever possibly taste. Now, you could talk and talk and talk and write and write and write about honey, Edward says, but then you taste honey. And then you're like, I get it. I get it. I see that honey is sweet. So what's the difference there? You can know about it, or you can know that you know that you know. You experience it. What's Paul praying? That the Ephesian Christians would experience the love of Christ. And that love of Christ then changes their lives. So what's Paul praying? He stops and stands still to experience the love of God in Jesus Christ. And what does that do? It changes us. The story is told about a couple who were foster care parents. And so they were well experienced with looking after children. And one day, the social services came and brought two twins to them. They were 18 months old and in a really sorry state. Every single home they had been in, they'd been abused, neglected, and beaten. 
And so it was a really rough first day with these two 18-month-old twin boys. It was quite chaotic. But then it came round to bedtime, and the foster care couple were ready because they knew it was going to be just as chaotic putting the two boys in one bedroom at night. This was going to be crazy. So what they ended up doing was getting the boys ready, to, ready for bed, putting them in their two beds, and they went and sat in the living room waiting for the chaos to start. But they heard something strange, something that they don't normally hear. They heard silence. So they went in back to the bedroom only to find these boys, their pillows were wet with tears. They'd been sobbing themselves to sleep in their bedrooms because every time they had cried at other homes and with other families, they'd been told off or beaten because they'd been crying. And what the social services had said, is said, these boys have been so, so wounded that emotionally and developmentally, we don't think they're going to make a recovery. So please do what you can, foster care couple. But in a year or so, the boys are then moved on to their adoptive family, their forever home. But what do the, what do the social services realize? That because of the love of the foster care couple, these boys are now exactly where they should be developmentally and emotionally. Now, I know not every story is like that, but what's the point? The love grew them. The love changed them, the security, the assurance, the knowledge that I have parents who are right here and they're going to love me and that's not going to change. What does that do? That changes a human being. We know that. So what's Paul praying for right here? That you might know, that you might know, that you might know, that you might know, that you might experience the love of Christ that changes you. You see, in prayer, we warm our faith on the fire of God's affection for us. In prayer, we warm our faith on the fire of God's love for us. And that changes us from the inside out. But what does knowing that love do? What does that experience do? Lastly, we're filled by it. Look at verse 19 again. And to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now look at the way Paul seems to be talking right here. He's just told the Ephesian Christians that everything they could ever need, they have in Jesus Christ. They don't need anything beyond him. And yet the way Paul prays is to say, but you're still lacking something. You're still lacking the experience and the knowledge of his love. Is it possible for Christians to actually have the love of Christ lavished over them by God's grace? Yes. Is it possible for Christians to not experience that? Absolutely. It's possible for Christians to to have that love and to spend decades wandering around never actually knowing and experience the love that he has for you. The story is told about a lady who worked for uh, an an American guy. She's a British lady, lived in the States. And um, she uh, was a cleaner for him. And every Christmas and, and birthday, this guy that she worked for was incredibly rich and worked in stocks and shares. He would get, give her a couple of shares in some company, and he would squirrel it away for her. And he said to her, hey, you better look at some of these stocks and shares at some point. They're looking quite healthy. You could make some money from this. And she says, I don't really know much about stocks and shares. I don't, I don't really get it, so I'll just leave them there. And what she ends up doing, she writes all of these stocks and shares that she's accumulated over decades of cleaning. She writes them to to Moody Bible Institute in Chicago. And so that when she dies, the will then is enacted and Moody Bible ends up getting the stocks and shares. Only to find out she had $6 million in the account. 
And what she'd said, she wanted this money to be used for European students to go to Moody. That's what I benefited from a few years ago. But here's the thing. Is it possible for us to live with that kind of a spiritual bank account and not experience it? Absolutely. That's why Paul prays that you would be filled. Filled with what? The knowledge of Christ's love. Jump jump forward a page very quickly. Paul uses this word filled in chapter 5. Look at verse 18. I think this is going to give us more of a window of what he means. Verse 18 of chapter 5. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Think about that. What is he using the word filled there for? It's a contrast. You can be filled with wine. What does that do? Well, it's a depressant. It's going to deaden your, uh, it's going to deaden your senses, and it's going to switch you off from the rest of the world. That's why you get a high from it. Alcohol is a depressant, and it, switches up, it makes us less aware of what's going on around us. The Holy Spirit fills us. He's using a contrast here. What does the Holy Spirit do? The Holy Spirit awakens our senses. The Holy Spirit makes us more aware. The Holy Spirit shows us who God is. He shows us how he's revealed himself in Jesus and shows us who we are in light of that. So I think what Paul, Paul is praying, as he's praying that we would be filled, as we're filled, we become more, more mature. As, we feel, as we're filled, we grow in the knowledge and the experience of Christ's love for us. As we're filled, we see more of who Jesus really is. Of who Jesus is in his life, death, his resurrection, and his indwelling presence with us by his Spirit now. So Paul stands still to be filled. And that changes us. So what happens when you know the love of God? What happens when you know, you know, you know? What happens when you experience that? Well, it changes you. It matures you. It grows us. As we get to know the love of God more, we are more secure. We are more assured. We're able to forgive. We are more generous. The words that we, people say about us that could normally hurt us, well, they don't hurt quite as much because we know there's one who has an opinion that matters way more. The love changes us. And it changes us from the inside out. You see, through prayer... We warm our hearts on the fire of God's affection for us. And that changes us from the inside out. Now in Ephesians 3, what's Paul doing? He's stopping in his tracks and he's praying. He's pausing. Paul stands still. In all that needs to be done in this letter, he stops and he prays. He prays for a deepening of a spiritual life. A praying for a deepening of a prayer life. And what does he do? He goes to the Father. So we need to carve out space in our lives to be able to do that. The porch life in our prayer life. With the mind of God, he prays what he knows is already revealed. We can do that too by praying with the Bible. To experience the love of God, the dimensions that go beyond normal human knowledge, asking the Spirit to show us this love. And the love changes us. It fills us. It matures us. And in all of this, to do all of this, to pray all of this, we stand still. Paul stands still. Now baby, you've sense that guilt around prayer. Maybe you know that busyness, and maybe you know that boredom. Maybe you know the chaotic life that never seems to stop. I know I know it really well. So this is a message for every single one of us in this room, to stand still. The first pit stop of 2019, the posture of prayer for you and me, stand still to deepen our prayer lives. Let's pray, and then we get to sing our last song together. Lord, we are thankful for your word to us. We're thankful for Paul's words to the Ephesians. And we're thankful that by your love 
for us in Jesus Christ, we can have our lives utterly changed. So help us to see that. Help us to know your love. And by your Holy Spirit, transform us, grow us, fill us. Help us to experience the benefits and the blessings that are already ours in Christ. We want to know it more. We want to know him more. And by your Spirit, we know you can do that. Help us to stand still to receive that truth. And we're praying in Jesus' name. Amen.